And if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we're looking at uh, the Ten Commandments, the last one of them. We've been going through the Ten Commandments one by one over the last several weeks, looking at how uh, each one of them is a manual that shows us God's good design because God created us, how it's a mirror that shows us our sin because we've fallen short of God's law and his ways, how it's a window that shows us Jesus and points us to him as our savior, and finally, how it's a practical guide that shows us God's path. Uh, and we've been looking at each of the Ten Commandments, uh, but they come in this, the middle of this book of Exodus, and really the Ten Commandments uh, remind God's people what God saved them from and what God saved them for. So if you look at each of the Ten Commandments, uh, the things that they prohibit are things that the Israelites experienced when they were in bondage in slavery in Egypt. Uh, so in Egypt, uh, people were in bondage to idolatry, right? What, what the first two commandments uh, uh, prohibit, uh, having no other gods before God. People worshiped many different gods uh, and did not know the one true God. Uh, Pharaoh uh, 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 made them work without ever having a rest. Right? That was what the fourth commandment prohibited, work without ever having a rest. And they had experienced uh, the bondage of relentless uh, oppression and slavery. Uh, they had uh, had people who were literally trying to murder them, uh, trying to harm them in Egypt. Their, uh, their labor was stolen from them. They were never paid for the work that they were done. So Israel had experienced what life was like without the Ten Commandments without living inside God's boundaries. But now God had saved them for a different way of life. And so we, what we've seen with each of these commandments is God is shaping how he wants his people to live uh, with two core principles, loving God, which is what the first four commandments are about, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, which is what the, the last six are about. So that's sort of the big picture of the Ten Commandments that we've been looking at. Uh, they show us what God saved us from, uh, and how life doesn't work well when we ignore them, and what God saved us for, uh, a life characterized by loving God and loving our neighbors. Uh, so since it's the last time we'll be looking at these Ten Commandments, I'm going to read all ten for us, but we'll be focusing on verse 17, the last one, which appropriately concludes them, uh, as we'll see. So chapter 20 of Exodus, beginning at verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out, of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, today we've come to the last of the Ten Commandments. And some people, when they read through all Ten Commandments and get to number 10, feel that this last commandment is a little bit anticlimactic. The first four offenses, after all, are offenses directly against God himself. And if God made us, and if God wrote the list, and if he sustains us and gives us everything we have, it would make sense why those ones would be listed first. Commandments 5 through 10 shift the focus to our relationships with other people. It makes sense that number 5, honor your father and mother, would come first in that list because for most of us, that's the first human relationship we ever experienced from the very uh, youngest days of our lives. Parents are the first people we ever become conscious of for the most part. Uh, Commandments 6, 7, and 8, I think, require the least explanation. They're the shortest ones. We all agree that Murder, number six, is a very serious matter. In fact, most people would say of all the Ten Commandments, number six is the most serious. Uh, It's irreversible. Adultery, number seven, while it's not as bad as murder, is also extremely serious, and certainly no one wants to be on the receiving end of it. Stealing, number eight, again, less damaging than murder and less of a blow than adultery, but still, stealing is a criminal offense in every society on earth. Everyone agrees that's not a good thing. When we get to number nine, we go from deeds to words, don't bear false witness. But when we get to number 10, it's not about our actions or our words. It's about our thoughts and desires. You shall not covet. In other words, don't envy what other people have. Don't set your heart on what rightfully belongs to them. Don't set your desire on possessing what isn't yours. And some people say, But why does that one make it into the top 10 alongside murder and lying and stealing? Coveting all by itself doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody else even has to see or know if I'm envying a little bit or if I'm a little jealous of something that you have. You can't make coveting illegal and punishable by law. And that's precisely the point. The Ten Commandments are not primarily a legal code that human beings or human governments are supposed to enforce. Now, yes, there are some things in this list that I think we all agree should be illegal and punishable under the law. Murder, stealing, sexual assault, perjury. But in the history of the world, no society has ever attempted to criminalize envy or coveting. Why? Because it would be absolutely impossible for any human judge or jury to determine who is or isn't guilty until we act out of our envy or speak in a way that reveals what's in our hearts, only God sees. Only God knows what's in there. And this reminds us of God's primary purpose of giving us these Ten Commandments. It wasn't to give us a legal blueprint that we should build our criminal law code out of. God's primary purpose in giving us the Ten Commandments was to show us how to live in right relationship with God and with one another. And while living in a society with good laws is a small part of that, it's never going to get us anywhere near all the way there. The Ten Commandments summarize God's, what we might call God's moral will for human beings. 
And this last commandment reminds us that God's will for us is not just that we control our behavior more effectively or even that we control our tongue more effectively, but that we love and obey him and honor others from the heart, from the inside out. God isn't just concerned with our words and actions that other people can see. He's also concerned about our desires and intentions. And that's what this last command focuses on. So that leads us to our first point. How is this last commandment a manual that shows us God's good design for us? Uh, now, again, this is an unusual command uh, if you compare it to law codes because no law codes, ancient or modern, contain this command. And so many people have raised questions and objections in response to it. So here are two other objections or questions about this command. So one objection that some people have made to this command as they've read it uh, some people say this command dishonors women because it, it treats the wife as her husband's property. Some people have noticed that the possessions seem to be listed in descending order of importance, house, wife, household servants, animals, everything else. Does that imply that a man's house is more valuable than his wife because it's listed first? Okay, the answer to the question is absolutely not, but let me explain why that's the case. The first sentence of verse 17 is, or the first phrase is a general statement. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And in this, this context, house doesn't just mean physical dwelling place. It means household as a whole. People, property, animals, everything that is connected together. The second part of the sentence, the second clause repeats, you shall not covet, and then it lists more specifically the typical members of an ancient household. Wife, uh, household servants, animals, anything else. So the assumption of verse 17 is that the wife is her husband's most valuable asset, more important than career, right? More important than the people he supervises, more important than cars, oxen and donkeys were used to haul things around back then, more important than anything else. Now, some people might say, well, okay, so the wife is listed first, but why is this command addressed only to men? It still sounds like the wife is her husband's property. But here's something you need to remember when you read laws in the Bible and in the Old Testament in particular. Most of the laws in the Old Testament, including all 10 of the commandments, were intended to apply to women, men, and children alike. But for simplicity's sake, they are normally phrased in the masculine singular as if they were spoken to male adults. Now, part of the reason for this is that in ancient Israel, husbands and fathers were responsible to learn and obey God's commands and then teach them to the rest of their family. Uh, but the principles apply to everyone. So think about it this way. Would it be a sin for a wife to desire her neighbor's husband? The command doesn't specifically say that, but of course, yes, it would be a sin, just as it would be a sin for a husband to desire his neighbor's wife. Of course it would be a sin for a wife to desire her neighbor's husband. The point that it's, it would be, the, even though the commandment doesn't explicitly say this, that's the clear implication. And everyone in the ancient world would have understood that. 
So except for a few specific instances in the Bible where a command only applies to men or only applies to women, most commands in the Bible are like this one. They're stated in the most brief and concise and general way, right? It doesn't spell out, well, what if you're a child? What if you're not married? What if you're a wife here? It's just stated in the briefest way possible, right? Otherwise, the laws would be twice or three times as long because they'd say, well, if this and if that and if everything would have to say his or her, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but we're expected to draw out the appropriate implications for our own life situation. All right, so that's first objection. Uh, hopefully dealt with. Um, uh, it applies to all of us, uh, men, women, and children alike. Second objection that some people make, and you might not have heard this one, but some people say this command doesn't actually mean what it seems to say. So if you go online and you search for what is the meaning of do not covet, you will find some websites arguing that the Hebrew word translated coveting doesn't just refer to an internal desire, it only refers to internal desire combined with an outward action. And in fact, this has been a debate for centuries, uh, particularly among Jewish rabbis. Uh, so some people have referred to Bible verses like Micah chapter two, verse two, they covet fields and seize them, or Joshua 7:21. when I saw a beautiful cloak, silver and gold, I coveted them and took them. So some people have even said, the command is only violated if you actually get what you covet. Or at least if you make a plan or take action to try to get it. But that objection is not ultimately convincing. And many Jewish interpreters, including a famous guy called Ibn Ezra, uh, have rightly recognized that this command is not just prohibiting desire plus actions, it's actually addressing desire itself. Uh, and we might notice this. I mean, first of all, commandment eight already said, don't steal. So commandment 10 isn't just repeating what commandment eight already said. Commandment 10 can't just be saying, don't steal again. It has to mean don't envy or don't covet, don't want it. Set your, don't set your desire on something that isn't yours. And there are also verses in the Bible where coveting is clearly described as an attitude of the heart. For example, Proverbs 6.25, a warning against adultery, do not desire or covet a married woman's beauty in your heart. Right? One of the reasons why coveting or envy is so serious is because it does lead to the violation of probably any of the other commandments. But that doesn't mean that coveting is just fine until we act on it. You see, the point is God sees and God cares about what's under the surface of our hearts, not only what other people can see in public. He cares about our private thoughts and desires and motivations and the things that we cultivate deep down in our hearts, not only what's apparent to others. And that leads us to the second point. This commandment isn't just a manual that shows us God's good design, that God cares about us inside and out, but this commandment also shows us our sin. How does it show us our sin? It shows us our disordered desires. Now, uh, just to be clear, this commandment does not prohibit all kinds of desires and ambitions. Uh, so in Buddhism, desire itself is seen as the problem from which we must seek to free ourselves. So the Buddha said the extinction of desire is nirvana. In other words, that's the ultimate goal in Buddhism is to sort of become detached from all 
human desires. But according to the Bible, that's not the goal. According to the Bible, God planted within each of us good desires and longings that are ultimately intended to lead us to himself, who's the fulfillment of our deepest desires and longings. So the goal in Christianity is not to suppress our desires or ignore our desires or simply detach ourselves from every one of our desires, but rather to rightly order them in light of who God is. The problem is not having desires. The problem is how disordered and warped our desires become. We want a good thing, but we want it too much. Or we want a good thing now, and we don't want to wait for God's timing. Or we want what somebody else has, and we fail to be grateful for what God has already provided for us. Now again, this command doesn't prohibit all desire. It also doesn't prohibit admiring or appreciating what belongs to someone else. Uh, so if I go to coffee hour, and if I eat one of Jackie Herb's scones, Jackie, are you here today? Jackie's here today. Jackie makes the best scones. Uh, I might say to myself, man, I wish I could make scones like Jackie does. I've tried many times to make scones. Mine just do not come out quite as good. Maybe I'll ask her for the recipe, right? That's admiring and appreciating the good gifts that God has given to Jackie and her generosity in sharing them frequently with the rest of us, right? What coveting is, it's not admiring or appreciating what belongs to somebody else. It's looking at the blessings God has given to someone else and resenting them for it. Or it's feeding our hunger for things that we don't need and might not even use. Fixating on something when God in his word has already said no to it. Coveting is saying, if only I had blank, then I would be satisfied. As one pastor said, coveting is wanting something so much that we lose our contentment and joy in God. And coveting is everywhere. Just look at advertisements, right? Many of them are not just promoting a good product, which is entirely legitimate. They're appealing to or intentionally stirring up covetous desire, wanting what someone else has, or a bottomless pit of discontentment. Even this time of the year, right? Sometimes we stir up all these desires for whatever it is, whether it's presents or whether it's a certain vision of family or a certain experience of the holiday. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The Bible warns us that when we set our hearts on possessions, and especially on someone else's possessions, or comparing ourselves to someone else, whoever they might be, it's going to be a never-ending escalator right? The, the mountain that we keep climbing, that the, 
the, the trail keeps falling away from us. And we never get to a place where we can simply sit and be content. In fact, if you read the Bible, some of the worst incidents recorded in the Bible began with coveting. So why did Cain murder his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4? Because he was jealous. God was pleased with Abel. God wasn't pleased with Cain because Cain, Cain's sort of gesture toward God was half, very half-hearted from the start. Instead of accepting God's correction, Cain decided that he would eliminate Abel. 1 Kings 21 Another ugly incident in the Bible, the wicked king Ahab coveted a piece of property that belonged to a man named Naboth. And he wanted it so bad, and Naboth would not sell it to him, that he framed Naboth, got him falsely accused of a capital crime, sentenced to death so that he could then steal his property. And it all began with coveting. Or think about what King David did to Bathsheba. The reference is 2 Samuel chapter 11. He saw her and he wanted her even though she was married to a good man who was a valiant soldier fighting on the front lines named Uriah. But David wanted her, and so he did what he wanted. He slept with her, and then he connived to get her husband killed in battle so he could cover up his deed, all because of coveting. Or think about the first sin in the Bible, the first domino that started the chain reaction that has continued ever since. Why did Eve take and eat the fruit of the tree that belonged to God alone. God had told Adam and Eve, take any fruit from any tree you want, have at it, it's all yours, the whole garden, more than you could ever want or need. Just one tree is my tree, belongs to me alone, don't eat that one. So why did she have to take from that one tree? Genesis 3, verse 6 says this, She saw that the fruit was to be desired or coveted to make one wise. She wanted, she coveted what belonged to God alone. You see, throughout the Bible we see that all the other violations of the Ten Commandments, murder, lying, theft, adultery, idolatry, they all begin with coveting. They all begin in the heart. That's why coveting is so serious, even though it's something that we often tolerate and indulge in and fantasize and think, well, I'm still not hurting anybody. And yet it's the same desire that leads to these terrible and ugly consequences. Three times, verse 17 mentions your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? It's more than any of the other commandments. It repeats your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, anything that is your neighbor's. It's reminding us that coveting starts on the inside where nobody can see, but the fruit and the result of coveting ends up harming and destroying relationships, harming and destroying our, fellow, our relationships with our fellow human beings. James chapter 4, verse 1 to 3 makes the same point. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your, passion, <clears throat> that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. How many of our quarrels and fights begin with coveting, with envy and jealousy? In one sense, if we could just obey this last commandment, we would probably avoid violating most of the other nine. But again, if we're honest and we, if we look at ourselves in the mirror of this command, none of us live up to this command consistently. Back in the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote this, this last commandment is addressed to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous. In other words, he was saying, this command is addressed to the people who read the first nine and think, I don't worship idols. I've never bowed down to statues. I've never worshiped all kinds of different gods. I've only worshiped the true God. I don't take the Lord's name in vain. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen from anyone. I've always been faithful in my marriage. I never lie. But when we get to number 10, have I ever set my heart on something that isn't mine? Have I ever wanted something so much that I lost my sense of contentment and joy and peace in the Lord? His point is every one of us, if we look at ourselves in the mirror of this command, must see that we have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Even if not, even if we haven't carried it out in our deeds, God has seen what's in our heart. And in fact, it's this commandment that seems to have particularly convinced the Apostle Paul that he was a sinner who needed a savior. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter seven, verses seven and eight. He said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, he's saying, I would not have recognized my own sinfulness and my desperate need for God to rescue me. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, in other words, the selfish desire down deep inside me, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Here's what I think Paul meant in these verses. I think Paul was basically saying, I used to think that I was a pretty good guy. I used to think I was an upstanding, respectable, moral, God-honoring person, but then I read this commandment, do not covet, and I realized that on the inside I was full of what this commandment prohibits. Envy, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, greed, all kinds of disordered desire. This commandment was like a mirror. It showed me that I was captive to sin and I couldn't set myself free and I needed forgiveness and freedom through Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the third point. This commandment doesn't just show us how we've fallen short. It's a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior. As with every one of the commands, Jesus fulfilled and obeyed this command completely. Throughout his entire life, Jesus lived out of the truth that God the Father spoke over him when he was baptized in the Jordan River. Mark chapter 1, verse 11 says, When Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven spoke and said this, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And Jesus lived out of that truth. Out of, he lived out of a deep commitment, contentment rooted in his relationship with God the Father and the God the Holy Spirit. He knew who he was. You see, Jesus didn't just clench his teeth and resist temptation by sheer willpower alone. No, he lived out of his union with God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit. And so when the devil came to Jesus in the desert, offering all kinds of nice and convenient things, comfort, fame, power, glory, no suffering, just bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't covet what the devil offered him. He saw through Satan's lies. He knew that his calling would include great suffering. And at times he wrestled with that calling in prayer, as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, Father, take this cup from me. You see, being content doesn't mean that we will never cry out to God like that and say, Lord, I can't, I don't think I can deal with this. Please take this away from me. Please set me free from this. Please help me. That's okay. That's, Jesus, Jesus prayed that prayer. But in the end, he didn't stop there. He submitted his will to the Father's will. He said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was content with what God the Father had given to him. He lived out of his trust in God the Father and out of the power of the Holy Spirit who filled him. And so he lived a life of contentment and not coveting. You know, think about it this way. When his disciples were anxious and frazzled, Jesus was calm and deliberate. When his disciples were arguing with one another about which one was the greatest, Jesus' goal was to be as the least and the servant of all. He found a basin of water and a towel and started washing their feet when none of them wanted to do it. Jesus lived a life of contentment and the opposite of coveting. And the good news is not just that Jesus has succeeded in obeying this command where we all fall short. The good news is that Jesus invites us to come to him and share in his relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants us to know that through him, the words that God the Father spoke over Jesus when he was baptized, those truths extend to us too. That God the Father says to us who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, you are my beloved child, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. You belong to me. I love you, and I will never leave you. Every time we take communion here, I read these words that Jesus spoke. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or in John 15, 9 through 11, Jesus said to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus doesn't say to us, try harder to be more content and less envious and less jealous. No, he says, come to me. All you who are full of envy and jealousy, all who are frazzled and anxious, full of cravings and strivings, and fixating on things that will never fulfill you. Come to me and find contentment in knowing that you are God's beloved child.
Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who has come to make his home in you and live out of that deep union with me as your Savior and God as your Father and God the Holy Spirit as your Comforter. That's how this commandment shows us our Savior and invites us to come into union with him, to, trust in, to turn and trust in him. Finally, uh, this commandment is a guide that shows us God's path. I've tried to end each sermon with a practical point or two. The practical point I want to end on today is this. Contentment is something that is learned over time. In Philippians 4, which Marilyn read for us earlier, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, Paul, is say, Paul says twice, contentment is something I've learned. It's been a process. Contentment isn't just something that comes to us naturally or it's not something that's passed down genetically. And contentment, and Paul's not talking about having a sanguine, happy-go-lucky personality. Right? Some people are naturally happy-go-lucky, low-key. Uh, Paul's not just saying, be like those people. Right? There, there are pros and cons to every personality type. I won't get into them all. Right? But the people who are the, you know, the opposite, who are the fighters, who see something that's wrong in the world and become indignant about it, there's something good about that, and there's a potential negative on that side, and the people who are happy-go-lucky sometimes need to see something wrong and be indignant about it and take action to, uh, to, to address it. But Paul's not talking about a personality type. He's talking about what comes out of our relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's saying this, and, and Paul says contentment is usually not a lesson that is imparted instantly and miraculously. Contentment, like patience, is usually learned through walking with Jesus through the ups and downs of life over a long period of time. Paul had experienced seasons of abundance. Paul had experienced seasons of adversity. By the time he was writing Philippians, he had been imprisoned probably for a couple of years. Uh, he had also seen great successes in his ministry and done miracles, but he had had others envy him and uh, treat him badly. But in the end, he could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He had learned that lesson gradually over time. And finally, when he was writing Philippians, he could say, this is something God's taught me over the course of my life with Christ. Now you might say, well, okay, but what does that learning process look like? Let me encourage you, if you are struggling with envy or jealousy or struggling to be content, let me encourage you to read Psalm 73 this week. Because Psalm 73 gives us a picture of the journey from envy and coveting to contentment. Psalm 73 begins with coveting in uh, verses 2 and 3. The psalmist writes, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And the first half of that psalm is about how in this world, the worst people often seem to be the most successful ones and have the most trouble-free lives and how unfair it seems. And if we simply look at our own present circumstances or if you watch the news and look at everything that's happening in the world today, 
there's all kinds of things that can stimulate us to unrest, envy, jealousy, discontentment, and grumbling. But then in verse 16, the psalmist turns his focus to God, to who God is. He says, when I thought how to understand all this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. In other words, the Bible. Be, uh, in other words, the writer began to look at things, not just his own circumstances and the world around him. He began to look at things from God's perspective and from an eternal perspective, and that's what led him to contentment. The psalm ends this way, verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He's speaking to God. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, if you read that psalm, and I just gave you a very brief overview of it, but if you read that psalm and sort of keep praying that through that psalm, that psalm will help you go on a journey from coveting to contentment and to find contentment in knowing God and having him as your greatest treasure, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you turn to Jesus Christ and find him to be your greatest treasure, your highest joy, and your eternal hope, then over time through the ups and downs of life, you too will learn what Paul learned, the secret of being content. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for each of these Ten Commandments, for how they show us your will and your desire for our lives, that we might live in harmony with you, in harmony with one another, that we might set our hearts on you alone above all else, and that we might live out of the promises that you have spoken to us out of our true identity as your children. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to rescue us. We thank you for coming to give us frazzled, anxious, covetous, sometimes contentious people rest. We pray that you would help us to receive that peace and rest and contentment from you and to live that out. Help us to express that to others throughout this holiday season. Help us to do that by finding you as the strength of our heart and our portion forever. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.